We're going through a book as a body uh, called The Other Half of Church. It's a little bit of a theology of neuroscience as it relates to how we as body of believers ought to interact. We thought it might be interesting to hear from Shauna Ezel. She's a member of our congregation. She's currently living in Florida. I did ask Shauna this morning, how would you like, what was your PhD in and how would you like me to introduce you? So here's what she said. She had a PhD in clinical psychology, a master's in social work, but mainly she's a child of God, joint heir with Christ, member of FCBC, who's getting to Madison through pendulum method. That is, she's been in England and Japan and uh, northern Wisconsin and now in, in Florida, but each time, you know, she's probably spent a collective uh, several years in Madison, but just in between those places. Mainly, I think of Shauna as an overcomer. I mean, she, as a young woman, single mom of four kids facing incredible uh, adversity and pressing through in really remarkable ways. So really respect Shauna and her journey, and sometime it'd be interesting to hear her testimony, which is also fascinating. Uh, but at the end of Shauna's talk, so she's watching from uh, Florida. Hey, Shauna. Um, but she recorded this. It's a little easier than um, trying to work out tech live, which, you know, if it doesn't work, we're, you know, sitting there looking at one another. So Shauna has this recorded. Uh, and then we'll do some interaction. Also, have we won't ha project the scriptures, so have your, this will be like uh, like some sort of Bible race, because she, she, you know, whips through scripture. If you can find it quickly, if you'd like to read along as you hear it, you might be ready to be flipping to the right passages. But then at the end, we'll just uh, turn to one another and chat a little bit about what stuck, stood out to us. This is on group identity. This will be the third message on group identity. And ways that we're interacting with and in, in seeing this scripture afresh through Shauna's eyes and her teaching. So be ready to chat uh, and then after we have a little time of chat, we'll come back for a few announcements. So without further ado, Shauna Izell and Group Identity. So I have a plan for this teaching. I have four points that you can remember that begin with the letter C. Clarify, conceptualize, convey, and commit. I'll first, I'm first gonna clarify the psychological, sociological, and biblical terminology referenced by the author when he used the term group identity. Then I'm gonna conceptualize the biblical reference to identity and group identity to which I believe the author is alluding in this chapter. I'll follow this up by conveying to you a very, very brief snapshot of the biological basis of the mechanism that allows for the development of group identity. And just, ex I'll explain just a little bit of why it is that others influence our behavior and we influence others' behavior. Lastly, and most importantly, I want you to be able to commit to some action steps. I'm gonna call this practice and that's at the very end. So first of all, group identity. 
is not a biblical term. There are 24 references in the Bible to the word group and no references for identity. The verses with the word group, in them, they shed no light on the concept of group identity. Neither will you find any words about social, society, collective, culture, or worldview within the Bible. These are psychological and sociological terms. The study of group and group influence is advanced by sociologists, social psychologists, and social workers. This research began in the 20th century with the largest body of the research happening in the 1960s and 70s. And really social identity theory was 1979. So how do we study this concept then from a biblical perspective? There is a way and that is where I come in. I'm a clinical psychologist and today I'm acting as a teacher, not a clinician. I'm going to teach you something of the research I conducted. This research is relevant to the topic of group identity. I'm not a social psychologist. Though my research delved deeply into social relationships, mainly between mother and child. I'm not a neuropsychologist, a neuroscientist, or a cognitive scientist. However, I have pursued extra training by taking two courses in neuroanatomy, several courses in neuropsychology. I dedicated half my internship to neuropsychological testing. Well, actually it was a lot more than half, probably by the end, about 80%. And I also wrote a dissertation conducting an experiment for which I had to study a great deal regarding the knowledge I plan to share with you today. I took three more years to practice what I learned and also to teach others the associated skills. My research, I check every once in a while, it's still supporting additional research. So I cannot refute or endorse some of the author's claim regarding the biological foundation of social identity or group identity or group think. However, I can say with certainty that we humans are profoundly influenced by the verbal and nonverbal behavior of others. Behavior, beliefs, values, perspectives, worldviews are all transmitted from one person to another through this mechanism and, and the mechanism is not group identity. First Corinthians 15.33 says, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Notice this verse says nothing about identifying with the bad company. It simply states, it will happen if you keep bad company. The mechanism is not the group or the social identity. Rather, group or social identity is the outcome or the result of the company we keep because of a God-given capacity to imitate others. Psalms and Proverbs also refer to this dynamic. Psalm 119, 9 encourages the youth to fix their eyes on God's word in order to keep a pure path. Proverbs 1, 8 through 19 also offers sound advice about where the focus should be. This is gonna come into play later when I explain. So notice that these verses, they say nothing about group or social identity as the means by which the morals are corrupted 
or the path is made straight or pure. That is because the mechanism is again, imitation. It's through imitation that identity develops across experience and imitation just happens. It's like breathing air. For example, have you ever noticed that you've been in a great mood and that all shifted shortly after you spent time listening to somebody griping and complaining in the customer service line at Walmart? Or how about feeling low, calling a good friend and then feeling hopeful again after she encouraged you? You thought it was your friend, you thought it was the crabby guy. They were sort of the vehicles, but really it's this God formed uh, mechanism in our inward most being that he created within us so that we had the capacity to imitate. It's a powerful capacity and it's also very sensitive. And I'm gonna come back to that um, mechanism. So the concept of identity is addressed in psychology and it's implied in scripture. As I said, the Bible does not use that word identity. So I couldn't examine the Greek word for it the English word identity originates from the Latin word idem or item, I'm not sure, I-D-E-M, which means same. Later on, later Latin developed into identitas. And then in the 16th century, it became identity, which refers to the quality of being identical. We identify through the mechanism of imitation. So there are many examples, many statements of identity within the Bible. For example, Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me and the life which I now live in the flesh by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So while I'm a trained psychologist, this is not my identity. And though when I am with psychologists and other mental health providers, I feel a sense of camaraderie, common understanding, I do not identify with or imitate other psychologists. In part, it's because I don't spend the time with the psychologists. I spend the time with the clients. I spend the time with the research, but I'm not really with the psychologists. So I've worked enough in mental health settings uh, you know, cross states, countries, continents, people groups over the last 29 years that I know simply sharing a profession, even shared ethical guidelines, knowledge, common language, it does not foster identification. Neither my character nor my soul adjust simply because I belong to this group. So I do not, I do know from whom I have been developing my identity. I follow in the footsteps of my big brother, Jesus Christ, Yeshua HaMashiach. He is the vine, I'm the branch. He is the author and perfecter of my faith. I identify as a citizen of the kingdom of God. I believe I was called, found, predestined by a God above all other gods who took on flesh, walked on earth in the form of a fellow human being. The writer of Hebrews refers to him 
as the firstborn, my big brother. When I accepted the gift of truth, I was rescued from the domain of darkness, transferred into this kingdom, the kingdom of God's beloved son, in whom I now have redemption, my sins forgiven. I am a citizen of a heavenly kingdom, which right now coexists with the kingdom of darkness. I'm in the light as he is in the light. So I held this identity before I pursued a PhD. When you do a PhD, you must write a dissertation. Some people think of that as just, you know, like a master's thesis, but really it's a book. It involves study and research. Um, so as a kingdom dweller, as a kingdom citizen, I chose my dissertation very carefully. I wanted it to be God honoring. I wanted it to reflect intelligent design. I wanted it to reflect what I've come to know as truth. So overall, I sought to answer this question. Why should the interpersonal or social behavior of one person, a perpetrator in this, in this instance, why should the interpersonal behavior of a perpetrator leave lasting cognitive damage upon a victim? After all, I learned sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Or we are in charge of our own destiny. And yet, this isn't how it works. How does this happen that uh, the perpetrator's behavior upon the person they abuse actually creates cognitive damage. In this case, what the research shows is that um, children raised in child abuse and neglect are gonna suffer in the way of language acquisition that includes math because it's a symbolic language. They're gonna have social problems also. So how does this happen? What can be done about it to foster healing and improve long lasting outcomes? So it turns out after all my research is that we are hardwired to imitate others. It is this capacity, this function, this mechanism that allows one human being to be able to relate to another human being. Imitation is the foundation well, the mechanism is the foundation upon which shared experience, empathy, and identification are made possible. The best example of really how powerful this is or the role that this function plays is when there is a malfunctioning. And the best example is uh, the malfunction to, to imitate in children with autism. So the imitation of a neurotypically developing child differs greatly from a child with autism. And as we know, the hallmark of this disorder is difficulty the child then has relating to another person to such an extent that uh, I remember the statistics about 30% of children with uh, autism may never even acquire language use. So, uh, uh, that is the best example of just really how powerful the ability to imitate is uh, and what role it plays in our social relationships. The best way to describe really not only how we know this or how this works is to uh, have you do some pretending right now. So I'm going to have you do this experience. I want you to pretend that there's a screen right here. Okay. 
You're not seeing that bookshelf. You're seeing a screen. And on that screen, it is my brain. And that brain is shaped sort of like a lima bean. So in psychology, we can image the brain and we know about activity of the brain because of colors. So where there's lots of activity, we're gonna see red. Where there's less, it's gonna be orange, then yellow, and it gets you know, down to blue. Blue is sort of a calming, cold, not much activity. If there's no activity at all, you're just not even gonna see colors. So let's just imagine that you can see my brain and I'm moving around a lot, I'm talking. So you're gonna see parts of the brain up here that have to do with my motor movements. So that maybe is across sort of the middle. If it's three-dimensional, you can kind of see that it kind of goes across like this. Um, you're gonna see definitely a big red light over on the left-hand side because I'm talking, really activating. You're gonna see also the right side activating almost same place because of the sing-songiness of my language, because of the volume, you know, you're gonna see all that highlighting on my brain. Now, common sense would tell you that you all sitting out there so quietly being so Christ-like, you know, just listening, you know, angelic and not moving around a lot because you're such good listeners that your screens, because I want you to pretend there's screens next to you too, um, that your screens with your brains on them are just going to be pretty blue, pretty quiet, not a lot of activity going on there, unless, of course, you're leaning over and telling, you know, but you would think common sense is that your brain is going to look a whole lot different than my brain. And you would be wrong. The fact of the matter is, is that your brain, your brain will mirror my brain. And that is because of this mechanism of imitation in a thing that we call mirror neurons. So neurons are those things in the brain that really, you know, activate and, you know, it's really just a whole bunch of neurons in our brain. So the mirror neuron is, happens to be a motor neuron that activates when there's sensory input in the way of seeing and hearing. And that makes sense, doesn't it? You know, you're seeing me move around and that's the sensory stuff you're focused on. And that is what's triggering some of that motor stuff at the same time. And that is what allows your brain to be like my brain. The ability to do this means that you can in way relate to me, you can empathize with me. So, uh, you know, what you focus on really, really matters. What you focus on is what is going, your brain is going to imitate. So you'll be able to uh, identify then also with what you're focusing on. Your behavior then is going to reflect that and be evident to others in keeping with that which you focus upon. So you'll be able to really empathize and, and when you focus. So I'm gonna really hit this home about this focus by using an analogy So uh, and contrast. So let's pretend that you are on the California freeway, okay? If you know anything about the California freeways, especially ones in Los Angeles that I'm very used to looking at, 
they can be quite many lanes, like six, seven lanes of traffic. And when you drive them at 70, well, maybe 75 or 80 miles an hour, you really have to focus and you have to focus on your destination. So think of this journey that you're on and you wanna get to where you go and you wanna stay alive while you do it, you are going to uh, focus on your destination and you're gonna reflect upon what you know. You know the rules of the road, you learned all that stuff, you hid that in your heart, so to speak, the uh, manual, and you are now acting upon uh, your focus and what you actually know within your heart. So you are driving along and you are going to be probably uh, a very good driver. Okay. Every once in a while, you're going to glance around, see what other people are doing, you know, but really only so that you can get to your destination safely. Um, in fact, a very poor driver is the one who's, you know, checking the fingernails out, texting, checking the neighbors, oh, they're chewing gum in the next, you know, the car next to me, or, oh my gosh, there goes a Ferrari, he's going too fast, and I'm mad, and, you know, he's going to beat me, and what's this guy doing, and that guy doing, those make the worst drivers. You could end up imitating everybody next to you, but you are not gonna get to your destination and get there safely. And you're not, actually not gonna be a very good example for your co-drivers if you're not focused on that which you know to be right and also which you got from the people who teach you that and your destination. So the ability to imitate really is God's method, his, his means of sharing experience with us, with him, and with each other. Because I can imitate, then I can listen to his stories in the word of God. I can, you know, if I lived in biblical times, I could actually see his physical representation on earth, which is Jesus. Now I just have to read the, you know, the version, the condensed version through the Bible of what he was like when he was walking on earth. But if I was like walking around with him, like the apostles were, you know, they could actually be, or the disciples, they could actually be with him and imitate him up close and personal. That is the focus. So relationship, it is the characteristics, the very nature of God. Even God exists in a relationship. It's called the Trinity. God made us to be like him and therefore we are relational. It is how we can function within this group, we're able to be relational. It's also how we can look to our fellow heirs of the kingdom and identify, meaning be similar to them. It's how we can see God in them and how we can see what we're learning in the Bible to see, are they acting like that? And it allows us the capacity to imitate. So imitation is the foundation of both the individual and the communal identity. And as believers, we must maintain our focus on the author and perfecter of our faith. So um, since it's absolutely essential to focus on this relationship, it's not surprising to find that word imitation in the Bible. Okay, I wasn't shocked. When I started to learn about the imitation, I was like, whoa, this is probably in the Bible. And I went 
And sure enough, I found verses in the New Testament about imitation. And we are supposed to imitate certain people. Like Paul urges us to imitate him as he is imitating Christ. 1 Corinthians 4.16 and 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, if you want to look it up. Ephesians 5.1, which notice I'm talking about Ephesians. I encouraged everybody to go ahead and read Ephesians. But um, it says to be imitators of God as beloved children. So you see, God himself is using the same model that mothers use to teach their children language and to teach their children how to behave. He is using imitation and he's doing it in the context of a family. So it says, be imitators of God as, as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. First Thessalonians said that through imitation, the Thessalonians became an example to all believers. Um, according to Hebrews 6.12, we are to imitate those through faith and endurance, and then we inherit the promises. So um, there are other, other verses, you know, I think of Hebrews 12.1, where it says, since we're surrounded by such a great of cloud of witnesses, let us maintain our focus on Christ. Um, Romans also 12.1, it says that we are to present our bodies as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, okay, which is our, our service of worship, and to be conformed to his likeness, not conformed to the world. So um, let's get to the commitment part. The commitment part is um, not me committing to you. The commitment part is you committing to God to yourself. If you want to, you can lean over to somebody else and commit to some uh, exercises, so to speak, some practice. Um, the I want you to commit to reading Ephesians, and I want you to read through it, or you could do what I did this week: is listen to it on BibleGateway.com, the audio Bible, if you prefer that method. But I want you to listen to it, and I want you to a focus on the I statements, the descriptor statements about the self. For example, Paul says, I'm an apostle. I'm a prisoner of Jesus Christ. After doing this, then I want you to generate your own I statements. For instance, I said earlier, I am a teacher. I am a, a psychologist, but I am a teacher. I am, you know, a, a person who's going to convey this to you today. Um, I may have even said, I'm created in Christ Jesus for good works. I am called. I am predestined. I am forgiven. Those are some of the ones you can even find in uh, Ephesians. So make some I statements. Next, next, follow up with I statements that are derived from the group. So for example, in Ephesians, Paul says, I am adopted, and I changed it to as a daughter, through Jesus Christ himself. I am sealed with him in the Holy Spirit of promise who is given to me as pledge. I am an heir. So those are the things that, you know, you're getting from this relationship or this group, uh, you know, adopted into a group. 
then read Ephesians with simply a focus on relationships. For example, and, and as a result of that relationship, what then happens? For example, Paul says, I too, having heard of the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ, which exists among you and the love for the saints, do not cease giving examples or giving thanks for you. He later even says it compels them to pray that their eyes might be enlightened so that they may know what is the hope of the calling, the riches of the, of the let's see, riches of, I forgot. Anyway, um, you guys, FCBC, you guys are the reason I came back to FCBC. The reason why I pray for you, because I had experience out there with many different kinds of groups and, and imitation of the Lord Jesus Christ, but not really seeing some of that um, played out in relationships with each other that I see so clearly with FCBC. Um, so I uh, encourage you and, and will continue to pray for you because I see the love that is at work in you. Thank you.